of true delight in my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Now, uh, as background, Gideon did really well in delivering Israel, used of God, to deliver Israel not only from the oppression of Midian, as we read in verse, uh, chapter 6 through 8, but also uh, to deliver them from Baalism, from their idolatry. Then, at the very end of the description of his, the, the account of, of Gideon, he made this ephod that we described last week, and it became a, a, a worship, an, uh, an item of idolatry. And so there was this downfall at the end of his life, a, a, a veering off of, of truth. And it caused all Israel to whore before it, as it's described, to prostitute themselves before this ephod that he made. And then it describes how this Gideon, or his name is Baal as well, one who contends with Baal or Baal contends, um, he also had these 70 sons, chapter 8, verse 30, and among them he had this one born of a concubine, not his wife. Those in Shechem, his name was Abimelech. Now, Gideon claimed that he didn't want kingship, and yet he had a royal harem, apparently. He, had, he collected gold. He... Uh, Name this son Abimelech, as we said last week, my father is king. Ironic that he would say, I don't want to be king, and yet the name of his son is Abimelech. Yet, it says in verse 32 of chapter 8, he died in a good old age, was buried, and it says earlier that the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, here's a sad thing about that verse 28, chapter 8. This is the last time it says that the land had rest, okay? We're really sliding into the darkness. There's a a creeping darkness at the end of Gideon's account because for the first time under one of the deliverers, things turn down. There's a slide into idolatry under the very guy who delivers them. And so there's this creeping darkness that occurs at the end of Gideon's account And I'm telling you, now in Abimelech, you just go down into the valley, and it's dark. It is black. There's nothing, nothing good about this chapter except God's judgment on evil. It's the only thing, that God's judgment and God's sovereignty over evil. But in terms of what man does, it's just darkness. Uh, One of our members reported that her daughter last week said, after hearing the account of Gideon, that sure was a lot of killing. (laughs) Well, it's nothing compared to what we're about to read in chapter 9. This is 
And, and, and really, darkness continues throughout Judges. We talk about how Judges is the story of the unraveling of the people of God and uh, sobering, sobering words here. Now, Abimelech, this son of the concubine, born in Shechem, the son of Jerubael, that's Gideon, okay? So don't, ever, don't forget that Jerubael is Gideon. <clears throat> he went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family. So he's really talking to his mother's brothers, and they're all, you know, descended from his grandfather, obviously. He's talking to them. Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. So he argues on the basis of his physical blood relationship to them and the fact that this can't be good to have all these 70 boys, these men rule over you. How about just one? And, of course, he puts himself forth as that candidate. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their ears inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. Okay? We're going for blood. We're going with uh, blood. It's thicker than water here, right? And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berit. That means Baal of the covenant. Berit is covenant with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless followers who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now, when it was, that's the first section, which is the treachery of Abimelech and Shechem. And now, here, this next section is the curse pronounced on Shechem and Abimelech, Abimelech and Shechem. And when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim, And cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go whole sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go whole sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go whole sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, this is Jotham commenting on his fable that he just gave. If you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserve, 
For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you've risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with us, with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. And now this section, you could title it as the judgment destruction of Abimelech and Shechem. So you see their treachery against the 70 brothers. Then this curse that is pronounced upon them. And the, the, the narrator is showing that this curse directed all the events that follow. Okay? This, this curse is now worked out in the lives of Abimelech and Shechem. And he, he shows this all the more by uh, the way he frames this section in verses 22 and 23, commenting, or 24, commenting on what is going to happen. And at the end of the account, uh, in verses 56, he comments again. So he frames it, says, don't miss what's happening here, that judgment is falling on them even though it seemed like the events just turned out. This is just the way this happened and this happened and this happened. Don't miss what was happening. This was the judgment of God upon them. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Very short rule shows that it was unstable. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. That means a spirit of calamity, a spirit that that would destroy. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed him, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brother. So there's the explanation. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. It seems here that they're plotting these ambushes, uh, engaging these ambushes to ruin his rule, okay, to undermine his his leadership and make him look bad. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? He's saying that he's a relative foreigner and he himself descends from Hamor, who's the father of Shechem. Uh, he, I'm a direct descendant of the father of this city. Shouldn't you serve me instead? You see the treachery on top of treachery, right? Abimelech has treachery to destroy the uh, sons and now there's treachery against Abimelech. 
Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. He's probably had a lot of wine at this point, okay? He's like popping off, no telling how drunk he is at this point, and, and you know, boasting about the power. Come on, bring whatever you have, Abimelech. I'll take care of you. Oh, sir, I'll, I'll rule over this place, that kind of thing. Now, when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. Now, Zebul uh, rightly represented Abimelech's in- interest here and was faithful to Abimelech. So he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from ambush. As David says, he was drinking, sipping his coffee and having a donut, you know, in the early morning. And he looks out and sees uh, the people. He says to Zebul, verse 36, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. Zebul wants to delay as long as possible. He said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. You're not seeing straight. Gael spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's uh, diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, where's your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So he throws down the gauntlet, challenges him, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Gael went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, uh, and Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. Apparently, Abimelech just scattered them, made them run into the city, He went to this other place to relax because it was taken care of, and then they were driven out of the city. So Gael was completely uh, demoralized and ashamed and and shamed. On the following day, you think it's all over, but it's not. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. And apparently there's this paranoia going on. Where, because earlier when the people went out and were talking about things, they uh, plotted against Abimelech with Gael in the harvest and everything. And so it, now it's reported, hey, they're out there. I think they're up to something again. That kind of idea, okay, is reported to Abimelech. And he, of course, is suffering from paranoia. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields, probably totally unarmed people, just trying to get life going again. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt, a sign of a curse. 
When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberit. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then, story's not quite over. Abimelech went to Thebes. Apparently Thebes was in league with Shechem. So you just naturally, I'm going to completely wipe out the, t- the city that was uh, joined with Shechem. And he encamped against Thebes and captured it. And here again, a repeat, there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it, and they went up to the roof of the tower to oversee and maybe fight from that vantage point. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, and he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. You see, for him, it's like part two. We're going to bring this one down just like we did the last one. But you see, God's curse is working. God's curse is in action. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And of course, here's the report (laughs) that we're reading it thousands of years later. A woman basically killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Like that was it. it was like they had been in a daze up to that point. And, and then suddenly just woke up once he was dead and it just ended the assault on Thebes and went home. Here's his comment. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers, And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal. Thus the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us, we pray, as we come to this word, that we would understand it, that we would live it out in our lives, that, Lord, we would give ourselves all the more up to the true judge of all the earth who will one day come to judge the living and the dead. Oh, Lord, bless us. May we all the more trust you, Lord Jesus, as the only Savior out of the darkness. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. Now, there is a lot here that could be said. Uh, there's a whole section that we could talk about in terms of, of leadership, uh, the selection of this leader uh, and the, the fable about that that was pronounced by Jotham. The fable is not so much against kingship, it's against this kind of kingship. Why would you select this man of all men? Uh, while way nobler, uh, you know, the vine, the fig tree, the, the olive tree, 
said no because they didn't want to use power in any way. They didn't want to use people. But the bramble just jumps at the opportunity. And you could talk about leadership that is there just to exercise authority and to sap people. Uh, and we could talk about how important as they did not honor the leader, Gideon, and all that he did, how important it is underscored in the, the New Testament to honor our leaders There's much that we could say about that as well. Uh, But I want to focus, uh, because, especially because it took so long to read it, right? Um, But I want to focus on what I I think is the primary uh, emphasis of this passage. And that is obviously that when evil is done, it is going to be answered by God surely both in this life and finally in the final day, in judgment. That is one of the clearest things in this passage, really what governs the whole passage. Whatever, However these things came about, it's that this curse is announced and then it's just unfolded as we read the passage so that for sure Shechem is destroyed and for sure Abimelech is destroyed. Because God had announced it. The, the announcement of Jotham is obviously the very, uh, the very opinion of the narrator himself. The writer himself is taking that opinion to say, here's what God said about it through Jotham. And this, this is what God did. So the question, what do we do with such darkness? How do we understand such darkness? And this... What, what's so humbling, what's so terrible about this, this, these are the people of God. This is the people of God. We're not looking at a pagan nation here. We're looking at those who claim to know God, who, who were supposedly the chosen ones. And, and we're seeing their absolute apostasy and their murder of each other. It, 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 you think, God, why would you even... Let us see this, you know. You'd think God would be real tidy about that and say, eh, it'd be better if we didn't talk about this bad little situation that occurred with Abimelech, right? No, God's is like, okay, let me, let me just show you what happened. Let me show you how evil my people supposedly got, and then let me show you what I did about it. I think that's what's being said here. On purpose, God is uh, revealing to us the extent of human evil, even the extent of what people who name the name of Christ or name the name of God can do if left to themselves, if they even themselves rebel against God. And so there's this working out of, of, of judgment here in these, these terrible ways um, and I want to explore this and skip a lot that we could say about it. As I said, the judgment in verses 22 through 57 is in the light of Jotham's curse, and the frame is verses 22 and 24 that begins it, and then 56 and 57 at the end. Here's the frame. This is what's going on here. And you'll see as it works out, these perfect kind of 
the, the perfect working out of the, the curse. For instance, there's this ambush in verse 25 that they set against Abimelech. And then later in verse 34, the ambush that's launched against Shechem. So ambush against ambush, showing this perfect working out. And interestingly, when Abimelech kills like a serial killer, he kills one at a time, the, the sons on this stone, just one after another, like you take a gun and just bam, bam, bam. May have seen Schindler's List, and you see the acting out of that of, of these terrible events of murder, one person after another. That's what's happening here, and it's taking place. Maybe the very stone that Joshua set up originally in Joshua 24 as the stone that was a memorial to our covenant with God. At least it's in the same area, and it's on a stone. may have been the same stone. And now it's it's with under under Baal himself, and it's maybe the establishment of the covenant of Baal by sacrificing all of these men. So a direct, absolute flying in the face of the covenant with Yahweh being financed by the Baal temple and then killing them at the very place where the covenant was made, the agreement, submission to Yahweh, to say in his face, we absolutely despise you and we reject you and we embrace Baal and we're going to consecrate it with the blood of these men. And there's no surprise then that, as it's indicated, one woman drops one stone on his head and he dies by a stone. The perfect judgment of God brought about on this this man. The evil spirit that's sent by God in verse 23 answers to all the evil. The same words are used in verses 56 and 57. You're going to bring about evil? I'll take the same word and bring about a destruction of evil upon you because of what you've done. And even this paranoia that breaks out, the, they probably were doing nothing when they came out after the uh, running out of Gael. They were going out in the fields probably just to get things started again but because of the evil spirit that was sent, the spirit of destruction. This fear and paranoia broke out and and he comes and wipes out the whole city. It was the judgment of God unveiling itself against them. And Shechem was raised down to the ground. And the, the completeness of his downfall by being killed by a woman, you know, the absolute most shameful thing that could happen. As we know earlier, Sisera was killed by Jael. And one of the ways God shows his absolute power over supposedly strong people is to bring the weakest everyday person. It just says a certain woman. We don't even know who she was. Just this nameless woman threw a rock, you know, a stone down and kills him. 
That's how easy it is for God to remove and uh, these these people. And of course, it's all the more pathetic that he's trying to then hide the fact that he was being killed by a woman. Of course, it was reported in the morning papers: murderous king struck down by a woman launches futile cover up. You know. <laughs> so we read it now, and there's a purposeful. A purposeful, sad mocking of all that would rise up against God. You read this in Psalm 2, where all the nations rise up against God. And remember the words of, of God, or what does God say? He laughs. He just laughs at power that would be brought against him. And because he will destroy that power. And so this whole sad story, as Barry Webb says, ends with no winners but God because his justice has been carried out with impressive completeness. There's no celebration at the end of this like there was with Barak and Deborah. And you see one of the outworking of this, uh, one of the outworkings of this evil is that evil destroys evil. When people begin to commit themselves to evil then everything's going to be destroyed and they will be destroyed. There's no fellowship in evil. Evil doesn't care for anybody. Evil is abusive of everybody that is involved with it. When, when you take the, the, say, the second half of the commandments, you know, to honor your father and mother, to honor authority, to not kill, to not commit adultery, to not steal, to not lie, when all those things begin to break down, it's destruction everywhere. And if we were entirely committed to those things, that people sometimes laugh at the law of God, they laugh at the authority of God. If we were completely committed to those things as a society, we know we would be destroyed as a society. You couldn't even exist as, as a community if you were not committed to those basic things of respecting one another's lives and authority and, and sexuality and possessions and integrity. And so this is another one of those pictures of what happens when evil is committed, uh, when, when, when people are committed to evil and how it always just implodes and destroys them and destroys everybody around them. Let that be a reminder to us that when God saves us, He can't just save us. It wouldn't be salvation if He just saved us from the, the final judgment of hell. He's got to save us from the practice of sin, right? He's got to save us from the inside out so that we are renewed in in ways that causes us to want to spend our lives for people and not to have revenge against people, not to gossip against people, not to lie to people, not to abuse people sexually, not to because we are being transformed into those who are, who are liberated from sin that is so destructive to ourselves and others. Liberates us by transforming us. It can't even talk about salvation unless it's salvation from this darkness. And along those lines, I recall the passage in Ephesians, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but I want to mention it again. There's this arresting phrase in Ephesians 5 verse 8. Well, first of all, after describing 
some of the stuff going on in society and how we must stay clear of it. He says, uh, let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So if we just practice disobedience to God, we're going to suffer the consequences. And he says, therefore, don't become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness. Now, here, here's one of the things I want to talk about, you know, when we ask this question, so what do we do about this darkness, Okay is that we have to recognize as, as serious as this is, and, and we, we recoil, don't we, from this horrible mass murder and this destructive uh, killing of these uh, boys, of these, these men, and then the raising of this city. It's all a part of the darkness. And here Paul says, you were darkness. He doesn't say, some of you were, were part of the darkness. And he doesn't say, some of you were a little shady, you know. Some of you kind of participated. Or, or he doesn't say this. This is what my, many of us think. You were victims of the darkness, right? You were poor victims of the darkness. Now, we, we were we are victims of the darkness because the darkness has invaded us and hurt us in many ways. Darkness from others. But that's not what Paul's getting at, is it? You, Darwin. Darwin, you. Yeah, pastor of Fort Worth Press, elder in the church. You know what you were? You were darkness. And so... We can never separate ourselves from any of the darkness that we see in Scripture. We can never just pull ourselves apart and say, Oh, that was them. I'm me. Thankfully, that doesn't concern me and never has concerned me. The great thing that Scripture says to us is, You all were darkness. But there's a good word in that phrase, isn't there? Let's all say it together. Were. <laughs> Let's all say it together. Were. Okay. And, and he goes on to say, but now you're sons of light. What a, how can that be? You were the producer of darkness. You were perpetrator of darkness. But now you're one who's a part of the light. Not only just a part of the light, but now you're perpetrating light. You're moving the darkness back by your light. That's what God's about, is taking us. As it says in First Peter 2, He has delivered us out of the domain of darkness, or Colossians 1, both say similar thing. Taking you out of the domain of darkness, brought you into His kingdom, or out of the light of His kingdom. And so, we who were darkness are now light. So we, we have, in the first place then, as we look at this darkness, we see our own participation, but then our, the, the God's deliverance from this darkness. And I want to refer then to our beginning hymn and the fact that this is Ascension Day, by the way. Uh, we don't, as Presbyterians, talk about it that much. But it's the day in which, historically, the church uh, rejoices in or celebrates the ascending of Christ to the throne of God to, to rule all things for His glory. And there is one of the great signals that the darkness 
is being moved out. As Lewis puts it in the Chronicles, that Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move when Jesus is enthroned uh, above all things. When the one who has died to, who wins sinners, died to deliver them out of darkness, is now enthroned to apply that death widespread throughout the world and throughout history, things are going to start changing dramatically. And the light has broken out and will continue to break out. And so we, in, when we face such darkness, not only here, but we face a, such a terrible darkness in this world, we have this great hope that not only have we've been redeemed from darkness because of the ascension, because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And now we're a part as His agents, as the one who has filled us with His Spirit to keep moving back the darkness by the very character of our lives in the places where we live. That's your great privilege. And dear brothers and sisters, you are called the light of the world. And as we've said before, there is no other light from Scripture's standpoint. Now, there is some common grace scattered throughout the world. Praise God for that. Many good and wonderful things in so many ways. But of this statement, only you belong. You are the light of the world. Only you are exhibiting a humility before Christ and an exaltation of Jesus Christ and a commitment to give yourself away for this Christ and to give yourself away to the true God and to live out His love before others. You are the light. And so it's kind of like uh, stars, you know, in, in your... Actually, Paul refers to us as stars in Philippians 2 when he talks about our living in this perverse generation. He says, you're like stars scattered in the darkness. And what's interesting about the way God sets things up is he wanted the stars to shine in darkness. He's allowed the darkness for you to shine. I don't understand that completely. And sometimes I have wrestled with the darkness that God has allowed to come upon this earth. But here's one thing that he's doing. He's actually giving you this stage, this this format in which to manifest your glory. And Isaiah and other places talk about this, how the glory of God now rests upon you. And it talks about how the nations will come to your glory. He says in Psalm 49, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And this is spoken in the first place to Christ, but it's applied to the church as well. That you are a light for the nations. And I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
We have a glorious word when we see such horrible darkness that's, that occurs here in Judges 9. And, and we see that this isn't the only place of darkness, that darkness pervades the history of mankind and pervades this world in so many respects. But you arise and shine because your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you in the midst of darkness. And then the only other thing I want to talk about is that this working out of God's curse will have its true manifestation in the life of anyone who refuses the grace of God. The only safe place for us is that we recognize, and this is how seriously God takes the wrath that is going to come upon the world, is to come as a man himself and stand in the place of sinners and bear that horrible wrath. It was so terrible that the night before he gave himself, he sweat drops of blood. He said, I'm to the point of death, he told his disciples. I I, I can't hold myself together. He was falling apart because he knew what he would be facing. He knew that he would bear up under the very wrath of God. This is how seriously God takes his wrath and how seriously he's dealt with it. And if you propose to reject that work of Jesus Christ, to ignore him, to say, you're not going to have any part of my life, you're not going to have rule over my life, I'm not going to search you out, I'm not going to pray to you, I'm not going to trust you, I'm not going to love you, you're not going to play any part of my life. And you see, you're, you're rejecting God's most gracious effort to rescue you from his own wrath. And he's even come to bear that wrath on your behalf. But if you say, no, I don't want you and I reject your effort to rescue me, I don't need your rescue. Then this this curse upon all sin will surely work itself out. And come to rest upon your head in that final day, even as it did on Shechem and Abimelech. These things that occur in the Old Testament are signs to us, pictures for us. In many respects, pictures of us for us of what will happen in the final day. Even though your life may be great. And in many ways you think, well, I've just got this good thing going, that good thing going. I really don't need God right now. And just like the, the, they probably all during that time were just going about their business, doing the next thing, doing the next thing, doing the next thing, doing the next thing, not realizing all along God's curse is coming upon them and finally brought them to judgment. Peter says it'll be like that. He said, yeah, everybody will be eating and drinking, minding their own business, saying there's not a God, saying there's not going to be a judgment, saying there's not a hell, saying there's no afterlife. Saying that nothing matters, I can do whatever I want to. Bam. The end comes. Judgment comes. And the scripture, Jesus of all people talked about judgment more than anybody. Talked about hell more than anybody. So, you you know, you'd like to appeal and say, well, but, but what did Jesus say? Yeah, well, Jesus talked a lot about hell. We can't appeal to that. And listen to some of the statements that are made in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, 
We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one of us will be before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know how long you're going to live. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know. (laughs) Kay and I got tickled at uh, a statement that was made in our hometown of Louisville. Somebody, uh, an older man said, you know, there are a lot of people dying now that never have died before. (laughs) I think I know what he meant, you know, (laughs) that a lot of, but, and along those lines, we could say, nobody here has died before, right? (laughs) None of us has died before. But unless Jesus comes before, every one of us will die. And if he comes before some of us die, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And every one of us, he says, will receive what is due, whether good or evil. Now, that doesn't mean that you earn your salvation, but it means that the good that will be seen is that you humbly trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You recognize that you were part of the darkness and you recognize that you couldn't fix yourself and you gave yourself up to the gracious salvation of God and it began to show itself in your humility and love that you showed to other people. That's what it's going to say. See, it, your character before God, your love of God, your trust in His salvation, it will show itself in your character. can't help it. In Romans 2, it says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, he speaks to the Jews here, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And some of you, if if you turn away from Jesus and you stay turned away from Jesus, every day is a storing up of wrath. It's like you're putting money in the bank. It's not money. It's wrath. And every day you reject him, there's another day of wrath. Another day, building up the wrath, building up the wrath that finally breaks out upon your head. And the details of it. On that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4 talks about he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. He will disclose the purposes of the, of, of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You can't fake this. You can't live as a hypocrite your whole life. Fake everybody off because the secrets of the heart will be revealed. Did I helplessly trust in Jesus because I saw my wrong? And so it says of Jesus, he's the one who will judge the living and the dead. In 2 Timothy 4. And Peter, when he's talking about how everybody living around you is trying to draw you into a life of wickedness, he says, don't join them. Even when they malign you and make fun of you and abuse you for it. He has this phrase in verse 5 of 1 Peter 4. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. That's to help you, you see. Help you see the clarity doesn't matter how much they oppose me or malign me or 
abandon me or you know, disfriend me, whatever, doesn't matter. They will have to give an account. And if I join them, if I fall in with them, if I abandon Jesus, I will give an account as well. Well, more to say about this, but I want to end with this, that what's glorious and at the same time frightening about judgment is that all judgment has been given over to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said this in John 5. He says, He has given him, the Son, to execute judgment. He's given all judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. When Paul was uh, announcing the gospel uh, beginning to in uh, Athens, he says the last words, he says, He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he's given assurance that he's done that by raising him from the dead. And as we just read in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll appear before the judgment seat of whom? Jesus Christ. Now, the most comforting thing in the world, if you've entrusted yourself helplessly to the salvation of Jesus, is that your judge is Jesus. What could be better than that? Like, if you're being disciplined in school and you go to the principal's office and your principal is your dad and it's going to have special... Now, of course, you get into, whoa, that wouldn't be fair, you know, all this stuff. But your dad who's committed to your well-being, who, who loves you, who sacrificed everything for you, to be in His care, especially now that you're in the care of the one who has personally borne the wrath for your sins. How glorious. The one who saved you, the one who loves you, the one who gave Himself for you. So it's the most wonderful thing in the world. And yet it's the most terrible thing if you reject this one who sacrificed infinitely for your good and you said, I don't care. I don't want you. I don't trust you. I will have nothing to do with you. And then you face him in judgment. It's the greatest comfort or the greatest terror because all judgment is in the hand of Jesus Christ. Oh, may we... I can entrust ourselves to this one who alone can rescue us from the wrath to come because he bore that wrath. And he alone can rescue us from darkness so that we can become sons of light. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we see terrible things in this chapter, terrible things of darkness. And yet we see... And this is our hope, that you judge the enemies of your people. You judge the enemies of your people even if they are a part of your people. If they abandon you, then they too fall into judgment. You will not be trifled with. We thank you, Lord, for the protection that you give your people for all, throughout all time. We thank you that the saints can appeal to this in Revelation 6 and say, how long will it be before you avenge our blood? And we read in Thessalonians that 
Paul says it is right that he would come and bring judgment upon those who've afflicted you. Oh, Lord, you're the great protector of your people. As you say, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye, touches my pupil. We thank you that we rest under your great refuge, your protection. And we thank you that you will keep us, that you've rescued us, and you will hold on to us. Though each one of us has a tendency to run back to the darkness, we, we have that tendency. We, we are not perfected yet. We, we still have much in us that, that, that is dark. And yet... And yet, you've forgiven us, and you're changing us, and you're continually removing this from our lives. And you have a hold of us, and you will never let us go. As helpless as we are, you will never let us go. We thank you, Lord. We pray all the more that we will recognize that we are the light of the world. And this world is in desperate, desperate need of the change that only Jesus Christ can bring about. Forgiveness, transformation, light from darkness. Oh, Lord, bless us. We will recognize that glory has risen upon us, even us, even we who are part of the darkness, who were the darkness. Now, glory has risen upon us. Oh, we praise you, great God, for rescuing us in Jesus Christ. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away